normally on Sunday afternoons that uh, we go through the uh, confessions of our church. It's our, our common practice to go through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, but uh, at this point in time, just going through one of our, our lesser-known uh, confessions, and that is the Canons of Dort, which deal with the, uh, the doctrines of grace and of, of God's electing love for us. I've been preaching through this. We're getting close to the end, and I'd like to uh, then consider Articles 7 and 8 of this in connection with the Word of God, and then in particular from Psalm 30 of the Bible. So first we're going to read from Psalm 30 before we turn to the Canons of Dort uh, Chapter 5, Articles 7 and 8. So in our Bibles, we read from Psalm 30. The Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So far the reading from Psalm 30. Let's turn to uh, our Kanzador and we'll read the scripture lessons from uh, chapter 5, articles 7 and 8. So if you have your book of praise in front of you, you can find this and page 583, page 583 in your book of praise. Article 7 and Article 8. So what we've gone through in the, the first articles, and I did preach one of these also in the morning service, but we've gone through uh, the fact that uh, there is sin also amongst us uh, as Christians, daily sin, uh, but also more serious sin. We learned about the effects of this sin last week in the afternoon. I uh, focused on Article 6, God will not permit his elect to be lost, but really focused then on the sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, now we get to um, Article 7. So Article 6 taught us that God will not let his elect to be lost, even if you fall into great sin, and now we get the explanation. For in the first place, in their fall, he preserves them in them his imperishable seed of regeneration, so that it does not perish and is not cast out. Further, through his word and spirit, he certainly and effectually renews them to repentance. As a result, they grieve from the heart with a godly sorrow for their sins that they have committed. They seek and obtain through faith with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator. They again experience the favor of a reconciled God 
and adore his mercies and faithfulness. And from now on, they more diligently work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Article 8. The grace of the triune God preserves. So it is not through their own merits or strength, but through the undeserved mercy of God that they neither totally fall away from faith and grace, nor remain in their downfall and are finally lost. With respect to themselves, this could not only easily happen, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, this cannot possibly happen, since His counsel cannot be changed. His promise cannot fail. The calling according to His purpose cannot be revoked. The mercy, intercession, and preservation of Christ cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be frustrated nor destroyed. So far from the canons adored. Actually, since we're here, I would just like to turn to the rejection of errors, number eight. Number eight. And so this is what they were uh, speaking against, and this is what the, um, the Arminians taught, and that is that if you're born again, you can actually stop being born again, or you can be born again many, many times. And they said, no, that doesn't work that way. Number eight. This is page 587. So the Arminians said, it is not absurd that one, having lost his first regeneration, is again and even often born anew. The refutation of the answer to this is, this doctrine denies that the seed of God, by which we are born again, is imperishable, contrary to the testimony of the Apostle Peter. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the assurance that God gives us at the Lord's Supper is so necessary and it's so wonderful. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does He Himself nourish and refresh my soul to eternal life with His crucified body and shed blood. That's what we hear, that's what we're reminded of every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we need to hear this. We need to taste this, and we need to be sure of this. Now, we need this assurance regularly, which is why we also celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. But we especially need it when our conscience accuses us that we have sinned. When we feel that we have fallen outside of God's favor. The first number of articles in chapter 5, the Kansas Dort, teach us what we all know and experience. I may be born again, I may be a Christian, but I do still sin. Article 2 speaks about those daily sins of weakness that spring up. It's a reason to humble ourselves before God. But Article 4 goes on to say, well, it's not just those small sins, so to speak, but sometimes there are also those bigger sins which we as Christians do commit. Serious, atrocious sins. And the effects of these sins is really serious. Indeed, Article, chapter 5, Article 5, the canons, it, it actually says that, that by, gross, by such gross sins, however, they greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, Grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense 
of God's favor. And that's really serious. When you have sinned to the point that you wonder, does God, is He even there for me anymore? And does He look upon me in His grace or is it simply in His rejection? But that is how it is, Article 5 says, until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly faith, God's fatherly love again shines upon them. But what is sincere repentance? What does it look like and how does it happen? Well, that's what we'll be finding an answer to this morning as we turn to Article 7 and 8 of the canons. And in connection with Psalm 30 that we read and, and the rest of the Word of God will be Focusing some other passages as well. I preach God's word to you under this theme. Repentance comes by the grace of God. Repentance comes by the grace of God. I do actually have three questions which I'm going to go through. I didn't put them on the, on the litter sheet, but these are these. First of all, what does repentance look like? My second question is going to be, how does it happen? And my third question is, how can I be sure? So what does repentance look like? How does it happen, and how can I be sure? First of all, what does it look like? Well, we read together from Psalm 30, and from verse 2, we learned that this is in the first place a psalm of thanks to God, a thanks for healing for someone who's become very, very sick. But the psalm actually speaks about much more than this. The heading of Psalm 30, and this is part of the Bible, it says, A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now, this has led many people to, to think that, that perhaps David wrote this psalm after he'd sinned when he, he counted the people to find out how big his army really was. Uh, you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, 1 Chronicles 21. At that time, David sent his commander, Joab, to go throughout the whole land of, of Israel with his men and to conduct a census. But David was told, he was explicitly told, and so he knew that this was displeasing to the Lord. He should not do it. He should trust in God and not trust in the might of his army. Now, a prophet confronted David over this. And so afterwards, he was given a choice of three punishments. And these were the three punishments he could choose from. One was three years of famine. Another was three months of running away and fleeing from his enemies. And a third was three days of pestilence, of, of plague, of, of great sickness and death. David answers in 2 Samuel 24 verse 14, he says, I'm in great distress, but let me not fall into the hands of men, but let me fall into the hands of God, because His mercy is great. And so the Bible tells us that God sent three days of, of, of great sickness. It says that 70,000 people died throughout Israel from this sickness, before it reached Jerusalem, it speaks about the angel of, of death effectively coming up and, and getting to Jerusalem itself. And then David comes and he pleads with the Lord and the Lord indeed turned away his anger. David went to a, a threshing floor. This is a place where there was uh, the threshing of wheat uh, just outside the city in those days uh, of a man called Arana. He bought the threshing floor. He, he bought uh, the, the wood and so forth. And, and he killed his cows, and, and, and he made an offering to the Lord, uh, pleading with the Lord that he might stop this, this, this pestilence, this plague from going any further. And the Lord heard him, and he stopped it there. Now, years later, this threshing floor where he had made this, this sacrifice, that was indeed on Mount Zion, 
which ultimately became part of Jerusalem itself. And it was on this mountain or this place that the temple of the Lord was built. And see, that's the connection between what happened then and the temple itself. And this is why, because this is for the dedication of the temple, why we can see there may be some connection between that event and this psalm. Now, whether or not it was specifically for this event that David wrote this psalm, uh, Psalm 30 does make it clear that there is a connection between David's sin and there's specifically his prideful self-confidence and the sickness that he asked God to heal him of. Psalm 30, verse 6 and verse 7, and I'll go through a few verses of this psalm. He said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, and another word for prosperity could be, in my prideful confidence, I said in my prosperity and my self-confidence, I shall never be moved by your favor, Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So it's by God's favor did that, and this could well be Mount Zion. And then it says, you hid your face, and I was dismayed. And so he sinned. And so on account of his sin, therefore, that David also says in verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And so Psalm 30 became used at the dedication of the temple as well as later on in this Jewish feast of Hanukkah, you might have heard of that feast, uh, where they uh, rejoiced in the fact that um, God had come back to them. They confessed that they'd sinned against the Lord. They'd suffered God's anger. They'd cried out for mercy. The Lord set them free. He restored them as people to Himself, and He also restored the temple worship. So this is the context of Psalm 30 for us to listen to it. And in this context, we can also learn about repentance and what it looks like. And in many ways, Psalm 30 teaches us about repentance and what repentance to God looks like. And it's very similar to what we actually read in our Kansas Dort, uh, chapter 5, article 7. A few verses from Psalm 30. What does he do when he repents? Psalm 30, verse 2. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. Verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Verse 10, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And so, so indeed, as he repents and he turns to the Lord, he's crying out to God for help. It's a desperate cry. It's a heartfelt cry. As we confessed in Article 5 of the Canons, serious sin wounds our consciences. Sometimes for a while we experience a sense of the loss of God's favor. But now through sincere repentance, God's fatherly faith, His, His, His face shines upon us once again. And so Psalm 30 verse 3, O Lord, You have brought up my soul from Sheol. This is really from the death, the grave. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And in verse 4 and 5, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And therefore, we adore God's mercies all over again. Psalm 30 verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. That means I will praise you. And you have not let my foes rejoice over me. And verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. Give thanks to His holy name. 
verse 11 and 12, you turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. But Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And from there on, as Article 7 concludes, those who have truly repented more diligently work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So David asks in Psalm 30 verse 9, he says, Well, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? But now he says this because God has healed him. And so he praises God. And he speaks of God's faithfulness. And he walks in the forgiveness of sins and of the new life that God has given to him. And so this is what repentance looks like. It's a godly sorrow. It's a heartfelt crying out to God for deliverance. And then being assured that you are forgiven. It means turning to God in the joy of forgiveness. It's living a new life in Him. Or as the Canons of Dort then puts it, chapter 5, article 7, those who repent grieve from the heart with a godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. They seek and obtain through faith with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator. They again experience the favor of a reconciled God and they adore His mercies and faithfulness. Sorrow for sin. A heart that seeks forgiveness. Rejoicing in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and experiencing the favor and the blessing of God again. So that was my, my first question. My second question is, well, how does this, all this happen? And now we're going to go a bit beyond Psalm 30. So to experience the favor of a reconciled God and to adore His mercies and faithfulness, it is a really wonderful experience. But how does it happen? And how do you get to repent? How is it that, that having fallen into sin, you don't end up losing your salvation altogether, but that we can become convicted of our sin and turn back to God? Well, in the first place, the Bible teaches us, if you are regenerated or born again, you will not end up losing your salvation completely. I'll give you one Bible text for that. It's 1 John chapter, 1 verse, 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. That's 1 John 3 verse 9. And so this, this seed is the seed of regeneration. It means being born again. And on the basis of this, and also another Bible text we read in that rejection of errors, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, we indeed learn that even though we fall into sin, God holds on to us. He preserves us. And He preserves the innocent seed of regeneration. So it's not like you're born again, you stop being born again and become born again again. No, it doesn't work that way for Christians. God will not cast us out. And because... God will not permit His elect to be lost. He is the one who works repentance in our hearts. And that's why I have this particular theme or heading here. Repentance comes by the grace of God. It's His grace that we may repent and we may turn back to Him. Article 7 of the Canons, the second sentence says, Further through His Word and Spirit... He certainly and effectually renews them to repentance. So it's not you, it's not me who choose to repent outside of the will or the working of God. 
But God takes His Word, the Bible. He takes His Holy Spirit. He works in us that we may be convicted of sin. And so then we do indeed understand and fresh how serious that is. And then we turn back to God and we repent. But it's God working in us that causes this to happen. And, with, and, and Article 8 tells us that this is God's work. And it says it's actually the work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So very briefly, then, let me just point that out. First of all, then, it's the work of God the Father that we end up repenting. Romans 8.30, it says, And those whom God predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. In other words, it's the same people whom God chose in the beginning who are going to believe Him at the end. And even if they fall into sin, God the Father will call them back and they will repent and be forgiven. But in addition to it being the work of God the Father, it's also the work of God the Son that we might repent. John 6 verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. It is Christ Himself, therefore, who pleads on our behalf that God, that God the Father might forgive us and might restore us to Himself. And so we're given assurance that Jesus will restore us, even though we've sinned, even though we experience a grief of a wounded conscience, a sense of falling out of God's favor. In other words, it's because of the truth and the work of Jesus Christ that we will be led to repent and to be forgiven. And so it's the work of the Father, the work of the Son, but it's also the work of the Holy Spirit. He's working in us as well. The last sentence of Article 8, it says that the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be frustrated nor destroyed. In other words, God's people are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This comes from a few Bible texts. One of them is Ephesians 1 verse 13. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're sealed in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, you're, you're locked in. Your salvation is locked in. And it's locked in not because of you, not because of what you've done, not because of what you're like, but because of who God is like and what He has done. And this is what we mean when we say repentance is by the grace of God. It's God working in us that causes us to repent. And after we've truly grieved and repented of sin, looking back at how we turn to God and we're restored back into His favor, we indeed, all we can say is, but for the grace of God, this could never have happened. And that brings me then to my third question. Well, how can I be sure of all of this? There are times we may feel very sure of God's love and His forgiveness to us. There are other times when we may wonder, but is it really true? My sin is so great. It's so terrible. Has God really forgiven my sins? Has He truly taken away my reproach? It seems so unreal. It seems so hard to believe that really, that, that, that I'm forgiven. And sometimes we may even wonder, is it even true? What if my repentance wasn't real? What if I, I didn't quite feel it right? What if, what if I didn't do something quite right? What if I, what if I, see, if I don't feel forgiven, how can I even begin to think that I am forgiven? 
What if, what if I'm not one of God's elect after all? Now, these are very real questions that Christians struggle with. Some people, some Christians will struggle with these all their life. And perhaps you also struggle with these questions. Is it really for you? Are you really one of God's elect? Are you really forgiven? Now, there's, there's much to say about this. And this is one of those things that we'll be going through in later weeks or so as we go through the last part of the, the canons of Dort. The assurance, how I can be sure that, that I really am saved. But for now, there's two things that I particularly like us to think about at this point of time. So that you might also have that assurance that God's promises are real for you also. The first point is this. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. The fact that you are baptized, or for some of you, God willing, will soon be baptized. The fact that you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is indeed a tremendous promise that God has given to you. Hold on to your baptism. Know what God has promised you in being baptized. Where God promises to you that He adopts you as one of His own. Where Jesus promises to you the forgiveness of sins through His blood. And where the Holy Spirit promises His sealing to you. God has given this to us for the strengthening of our faith, that we might be directed to the promises of the gospel of salvation in Christ and indeed believe that it is indeed as God has said, and it's not just for others, but it's for me also. So first of all, then, if you're really doubting and questioning about the fact that have I repented and, and am I forgiven, remember your baptism. And the second one is, Remember, experience the Lord's Supper. Our form for the Lord's Supper reminds us that it was in order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace that the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave the bread and the cup to His disciples in remembrance of Him. He taught us to understand that as often as we eat this bit of bread, as often as we drink from the cup of the Lord, you are reminded and you are assured of His hearty love and His faithfulness towards you. Indeed, and as our Formosa says this in, in the longer version, we'll probably read the shorter one today, but our Formosa says that it's a sure pledge, it's a promise that He has given His body and His blood for us. Jesus nourishes us. He refreshes our hunger and our thirsty souls with His crucified body and with His shed blood to everlasting life. As certainly as this bread is broken before your eyes, as certainly as this cup is given to us and you eat and you drink in remembrance of Him. That's the blessing. And that's what we may be assured of. Every single time we have the celebration of God's Holy Supper. And so turn to the Lord. Hold on to His covenant promises that were given to you in your baptism. Receive the assurance of God's forgiveness at His table. And as you do that, then 
Indeed, you and we all can turn back to Psalm 30. And we can say from verse 4 and 5, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen.